if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 15, and I will be reading from verses 1 to 35 from the English Standard Version. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about the question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, 
to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have, therefore, sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered their congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when it, they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers and those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the Lord, the word of the Lord, with many others also. This is God's word. I can remember growing up as a kid, me and my brother would always place stipulations on one another. You, know, you, you, you can be in my good favor and be a part of this household if you do what I say. If you give me the television remote, if you let me play video games longer than you, or at least as long as you. And, and, and I see that happening with my own kids today. You know, they place stipulations on one another uh, as if it, it would go better for individuals depending on how they acted and pleased one another. Becky and I do it also. We discovered over the years that even as parents, it is very, very easy to fall into a pattern of parenting by the law, parenting primarily by codes. Uh, if you follow a certain code, if you follow a certain rule, things will go well for you in this house. Now, we all know that's true. We have to follow codes and rules. Rules and laws are good. But if we live by rules and laws and uh, judge one another's worth by rules and laws, we start getting into problems. And Becky and I discovered over the years how it's so easy to parent by law. What we discover with uh, being parents is, you know, performance doesn't establish whether you belong in a household or not. Your status determines whether you belong in a household or not. Whether you are a son or a daughter, that de your status as children determines your belonging in a household. Not your performance. And not how well you do to uphold your parents' codes. And that should affect how we as siblings treat one another. By status, the Bible tells us, by status with God, by God's grace, we are members of his household. And that is enough to be a member of the household of God, to be drawn in by his gift of grace. That is something that Becky and I have had to learn as parents, uh, to lead with grace and not lead with law. The early Christians had to discover that also and how they related to one another, to regard one another primarily from the perspective of grace and not allow law and code to be the primary motivating agent of how they related to one another. And trying to understand that balance between law and grace is really important. God's spirit gives his church 
his leaders and his people, discernment to disciple by grace and not by law. If you're a leader, if you're a parent, if, uh, if, if, any way, if in any way God has entrusted you with a responsibility uh, over other people, you must learn how to lead by grace and not by law. And it's something we all have to consider as we relate to one another. So in Acts chapter 15, uh, Luke reminds us, well, actually, let me go a little bit earlier to Acts chapter 14, verse 27. The apostle Paul and Barnabas, this team, uh, they had gone out on their first missionary journey in uh, basically the Eastern Roman world, Asia Minor, uh, the, the Eastern Mediterranean uh, that region. They had gone out on a first missionary journey. They had, they had evangelized in Gentile cities, and they had planted churches uh, throughout that part of the world. And they came back to their sending church to Antioch, and they told Christians in Antioch that God had, I quote, opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. They're back in Antioch for several years now, and what Luke tells us at the beginning of uh, chapter 15 is there was a sect there, were, there, were, there was a sect of Christians in the early church uh, that, that were holding on uh, to the idea of the Pharisees. John Calvin called the Pharisees law addicts. They were just addicted to following the Mosaic law and finding their identity and their pride and their ability to keep, at least outwardly, the Mosaic law. And we see in verse 1, uh, this party says to, to, the, to the believers, Jews and Gentiles in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In verse 5, uh, same, the, 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 the Jews, uh, the Christians who are part of the Pharisee party uh, in Jerusalem in verse 5 say almost the same thing. It's necessary to circumcise them, meaning Gentiles, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So basically, this is the big question facing the early church at this point. Did Gentiles, since there was an enormous influx of Gentiles into Christianity which had started kind of almost as a Jewish sect, okay? Now, with, with an enormous influx of Gentiles over several years, did Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? That's the essence of the debate. That's the essence of the question. Now, for you today, it may seem an obvious duh. Of course not. It was not obvious to the early Christians, so do Gentiles have to become Jewish in order to follow Jesus? And so Luke records for us the very first ecumenical council in church history, the Council of Jerusalem. And John Stott, the, the recent pastor and, and scholar, he said that, that this Jerusalem council accomplished two very important things. They were able, by the grace of God, to preserve the message of grace and the fellowship of all believers. This council established once and for all that at the center of Christianity is the concept of grace and that all of God's children share a fellowship, a unity, a partnership with one another. And that's what I want to talk to you today about, which is grace and fellowship. Now, here's how Jeruz the Jerusalem Council preserved the fellowship of all believers. 
what they basically say, they have this, they have this long, sorry, I'm having problems with my remote here. They all get together in Jerusalem and Luke, Luke allows us to hear from Paul and Barnabas and from Peter and from James, uh, not the James who was executed by Herod. That was James, the son of Zebedee, John's brother. This is James, Jesus's biological brother who becomes a leader um, in the church in Jerusalem. And uh, we get to hear from all of them. And the council, after a lot of debate, and a lot of speaking, uh, comes to a decision and they, they formulate a letter all right, headed up by James, they formulate a letter and they send this letter off with Paul and Barnabas and others back to Antioch for the church in Antioch uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a multicultural, diver, diversely but mostly Gentile city. Uh, this is what they say. It has seemed good, and this isn't the whole letter, this is just, I'm reading you part of it. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. And Luke tells us that when the church in Antioch read that letter, they rejoiced. When we read it, it just says something about sexual immorality and a bunch of food stuff. So what's why is this a reason to rejoice? There are four basic stipulations that we read, right? Different, different order here than in the actual council, but, but I'm reading it to you from the actual letter itself. Four stipulations. Well, why, why didn't they just read them, the Ten Commandments? Hey, all right, so you, you're in with God now? Here are the Ten Commandments. Just obey the Ten Commandments. You're good. Why not just quote Jesus, right? the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God? your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God and love your neighbor. That's all you need to know, really. Why not just say that? Here's why. Because what, what the, the council in Jerusalem was primarily doing was dealing with not so much a moral and ethical problem, although it certainly relates to that. They're dealing primarily with a cultural problem. They understood this as primarily a cultural problem that had to be resolved. Let me explain. Food and sex were the biggest obstacles to Jews and Gentiles being able to live alongside of one another and worship together and follow Christ together. The big cultural issues were food and sex. Let's just start with food. Uh, the first three stipulations have everything to do with, with diet. Um, buying and eating foods that were offered to pagan deities offended the Jews enormously because of the Old Testament ceremonial law of the things that they could and couldn't eat and to worship God alone and not pagan deities. But in the Greek culture, in, in, in the Greco-Roman culture, it was common uh, to be a part of a worship cult where food was offered and sacrificed to pagan idols. It was quite common to buy food in the market that had been dedicated to earlier and, and sacrificed to, offered up to a pagan deity. So Gentiles thought nothing of eating any kind of food anywhere, regardless of what had happened before it ended up in the marketplace. But Jews had scruples about this, and their conscience was bothered by it tremendously. In Leviticus chapter 17, uh, God said to the Israelites, you shall not eat the blood of any creature. 
For the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Now, uh, what's mentioned here is blood. That's relating to food. What's also mentioned is stay away from things that are strangled. If you kill an animal by strangling it, it retains some of its blood, even when it's cooked. Right? And, and the Jews were offended by the idea of eating food uh, that still retained its blood because of the way that it was killed and prepared. So basically, uh, if, if Gentile Christians could show respect for the Jewish uh, dietary sensibility... You remember how offended Peter was when Jesus told him, rise, Peter, kill and eat any kind of animal you want. Right. And Peter had to learn how to do that. And he was he was criticized early on for doing that. You go back to Acts chapter Acts chapter 10. He was criticized for doing that. He got past it. But here, the, the, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem were saying this is a this is a big issue. Jews are having a hard time getting beyond the dietary issues. And if you can respect the Jewish food sensibilities based on the Old Testament law, it'll it'll be a lot easier for Jews and Gentiles to get together over a meal. Isn't that where most of us get to know each other over a meal? How can you really know a person if you don't sit down and have a meal with them? Man, if, 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 you, if you Gentiles could just respect the Jewish customs with food, it'll be a lot easier to get together and to get to know one another. The fourth stipulation, though, really doesn't have to do with food. It has to do with sexuality. Now, in the Greco-Roman culture, sexuality was... It, it permeated every aspect of life in their culture, kind of like what's happening in our society now. And I've heard, I've heard one preacher once say that, that sex is like a god in America now. Well, it very much was connected to idol worship and to religion in the Greco-Roman culture. Scholars say that at the temple in Corinth, there were at least 1,000 employed prostitutes. I mean, if, if you were a prostitute in the Greco-Roman world, it, it was like being a religious professional uh, because... Uh, what the, ancient, what the ancients believed was, was that uh, sex between human beings in a temple encouraged the gods to procreate with one another, which brought about fertility not only of your family and of your culture, but your crops would grow. So sex was wrapped up in religion. And, and it was something that was just, it was just normal to the Gentile uh, worldview and lifestyle. The ancient uh, Greek leader, uh, Demosthenes, who lived uh, in the 4th century BC, this is what he said. The prostitutes we have for our pleasure, the concubines for the daily care of our bodies, and our wives so that we can have legitimate children and a true guardian of the house. And that, menta that mentality amongst Gentile men, it also encouraged Gentile women uh, to engage in um, sexual deviancy themselves almost to compensate uh, for the issue. That was kind of the norm, um, to encourage deviancy between um, married, when, married women and the slaves and servants of a household. And so this is the culture in which Jewish Christians find themselves rubbing up against as Gentiles begin to come to the faith, who had been raised with very different sensibilities, uh, the Jews could look back to passages in the law, uh, like Leviticus chapter 18, verse 30. 
and where God says to them, keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord, your God. So their objectives, right, the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, the, the council's objective seems to be less moral, although sex is all about morality and ethics, of course. But their primary issue here is culture. What are the, what are the two things that are going to make it impossible for Jews and Gentiles to eat together and be seen in public together and, and get along with one another without freaking out? We have to address food. We have to address sexuality. And that's what they did. If the Gentiles could respect Jewish conscience regarding diet and sexuality and types of marital relationships, they could begin to have true fellowship, true partnership with one another. They could get beyond, oh my goodness, I can't even be in your presence. I can't even eat in your presence. Um, into actually getting to know one another and sharing life together. Uh, so the Gentiles, uh, they discover, this is why they rejoice, because they didn't have to lose their ethnic identity and their cultural identity in order to become Christians. The Jews didn't have to lose their, their ethnic identity and their cultural sensibilities either. And this, scholars all agree, this is a crossroads in the early church. This is a crossroads, I believe, in the history of religion on our planet where a code, right, a, a system of rules and regulations is no longer seen as the primary thing to regard and respect and to live by. But something far deeper than that, something that brings them together and it's grace. It's, it's a God-given status, not a religious performance that brings them together and unites them in fellowship. It's the grace of God. And here's how the Jerusalem Council preserved grace. We hear from Peter. Uh, the Apostle Peter, who we barely see anymore. This is the last time we're going to hear from Peter in all of Luke's history in Acts. This is it. And we haven't heard from Peter in years, according to Luke's history. But here Peter shows up and he speaks up and he says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's referring back to the Roman centurion Cornelius and his family. Peter went on to say, And God made no distinction between us and them meaning the Gentiles, having cleansed their hearts by faith. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And I just want to focus on the fact that Peter highlighted grace. If you don't know what the word grace means in a Christian context, in a biblical context, it's this, God's free, undeserved favor towards sinners who don't deserve it. It's a gift. Grace is God's loving kindness, his favor given to you, even though you don't deserve it, given to you by a gift. And Peter's words here, saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We believe that we'll be saved through the grace of Jesus. It's very similar to what we read earlier from Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. The Apostle Paul said almost the same thing in his letter to Christians in the province of Galatia. Paul said, yet we know that a person is not justified 
meaning made right before God, okay? A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, Paul had to address this issue with churches in the southern province of in the southern part of the province of Galatia in Asia Minor because this meant this pharisaical idea of Gentiles have to begin following the Mosaic law and become Jewish in order to follow Jesus it was popping up everywhere it was popping up in churches all all over the world and so what the council in Jerusalem decides to address Paul has already had to deal with in a letter to churches in Galatia and and so Paul writes a letter to Christians in Galatia before this Jerusalem council. And Paul sheds light on an issue that will help us understand what's really going on. So I'm going I'm to actually read to you uh, the whole thing. There's, there's no way to make this shorter. In Galatians chapter 2, uh, verses 11 through 14, this is what Paul wrote. But when Cephas came to Antioch, Cephas is Peter. This is another way of saying Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, where's James? In Jerusalem. Now remember what James said in his letter. These people aren't affiliated with me. These people aren't affiliated with us in Jerusalem. Okay, let me go back to what Paul said. Before certain men came from James, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Paul was convinced of this. And he believed that Peter had forgotten the grace that he had originally preached to Cornelius many years before. This was such a difficult issue for the early Christians uh, that even Peter and Barnabas, Paul tells us, were confused and struggled with it. And out of fear, they began to disassociate themselves with Gentile Christians because of what other Jewish Christians of the Pharisee party were saying and doing. And they must have had a very intellectual, a very well-crafted, you know, well robust argument. Uh, but that really didn't matter. It seemed that Peter and Barnabas were, were living in fear. That was the struggle. So apparently when Peter now is talking at the Jerusalem council, he's coming from the perspective of a repentant mind. He has a change of heart when he speaks in Jerusalem after so the gentiles don't have to become jews is really the point the gentiles don't have to become jews to be legit to be a legit follower of jesus it doesn't matter what your background is what your nationality or ethnicity or what your past was all you need to do is receive and believe in the grace of the lord jesus christ and that's where we all begin and that's what establishes our fellowship with one another Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. That's what, the, that's what the reformers talked about in the 1500s and the 1600s. And Michael Horton, a current scholar, summarizes it really well. He says, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. 
God does not give us the grace to save ourselves with his aid. He declares us righteous the moment we give up our own claims to righteousness and our own struggles for divine approval and recognize the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness as our own. So the Christian community, and you see it here, the Christian community is a people living by grace. Not just, it's not just a buzzword, right? No, grace is specific. It's a community of people living by, defining themselves by, and regarding one another by grace, through the lens of grace. That we're all part of this family by virtue, not of our performance, but by virtue of our status. God has made us sons and daughters of his household. And we regard one another, regardless of our background and our sensibilities and our different convictions, we regard one another that way. Of course, there's sin. We have to deal with sin. We have to encourage one another to flee from sin. The whole New Testament talks about that. It's not that morality and ethics are not important. They're critically important, but they're not the foundation. Morality and ethics change as you live by grace. It's not the other way around. And that's, that's, that's what the early church had to recognize. Grace is the beginning, and then our lives change once we're established by grace. But don't start putting these rules on one another because that's not the foundation. And that's what the early church, through struggle, finally recognized. So fellowship was possible now because God's Spirit promoted grace over law. Now, when Christianity, you may not all be, if you're not a Christian here, I want to encourage, this is good news, I believe, okay? You may have a viewpoint and a perspective on Christianity uh, that comes from you reading about and watching people judging one another by breaking a code, okay? Here's the thing. When Christianity is compromised, it's usually because Christians or people who are associated with the church revert back to some form of legalism. That's how Christianity gets compromised. It's not just bad behavior. It's something far more devious and subtle and sinister than that. It's when Christians revert to legalism, putting law above grace. We add our own codes on top of the gospel itself. We say grace, great. Okay, good, good, good. But it's grace and my background. You know, if, if, if you look like me and, and, and like the things I like, well, well, then we can have fellowship with one another. It's grace and my politics. It's grace and my, my artistic sensibilities, you know, the kind of music I like. Um, it's grace and, I don't know, my career. So... I remember uh, reading about uh, the, the screw tape letters. C.S. Lewis writes the screw tape letters, and, and this demon, Uncle Screwtape, he writes to his nephew, his demonic nephew, Wormwood, and he basically says to him, this is a paraphrase, look, the best way you can trip Christians up is by getting them to believe in Christianity and dot, dot, dot. Christianity and something else. If you can get them focused on something else that they add to their Christianity, they'll be prideful about that something else and they'll start judging one another and, and judging people or, or outside of Christianity because they start to forget what Christianity is really about. It's normal to think that way. 
It's, it's normal to think that our code and our laws are really important. And uh, to judge other people because they break our code and break our law, it's normal. That is something that I think we all do, but it's not good. It's normal, but it's not good. Remember something else that Peter said to the council. This is a guy who had to deal with his own preoccupation with the code, with the law. He had to deal with his own bigotry. This is what the reformed Peter ended up saying. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? We can't keep the law. Now we're going to put it on other people that they're supposed to keep what we can't ourselves keep. This was the mentality, I think, that Jesus opposed the most. Now, if you think I'm saying sin is irrelevant and God doesn't have an established order by which we should live our lives, that's not what I'm saying at all. Because Jesus would say to people, go and sin no more, right? Your, your faith has made you well. Now go and sin no more. Stop sinning or something worse will happen to you, right? Jesus didn't ignore morality and ethics. But Jesus, more than anything, he was against this mentality of putting the law, putting the law, Above the grace and mercy of God. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. You know what a proselyte is? It was, it was a Gentile who converted to Judaism which would have been the norm before Christ came along. Woe to you, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Now, I want you to take Pharisee and scribe out of there and put your own name in there. Woe to you, you evangelical American Christians. Are you making the people you are trying to reach twice as much sons and daughters of hell as yourselves? Can you imagine Jesus speaking to us with those same words? The gospel of grace plus whatever law you are trying to add to it equals nothing but more legalism. The gospel of grace is so pure that it must be taken alone on its own merit without adding anything to it. The second you add something to it, you no longer have it. You've lost it. That's why this was a crossroads for world history, I believe, and why it was a turning point for the early church, and they would never go back once they established there were creative, sensible ways of helping Jews and Gentiles to get together. If they could respect one another, If Jews could respect Gentiles' non-Jewishness, and if Gentiles could respect Jews' Jewishness, well, there's a start. We have to do the same thing culturally, economically, racially in America, and right here in Carroll County. We've got to start thinking this way if we're going to reach the people around this building. So if you're a churchgoer, let me ask you a question. Have you simply added Christianity to your own morality. Because that's what the Pharisees were doing. They loved the law. And they said we like this Jesus guy too. So they just added Jesus to their law. And are you doing the same thing? Are you adding Jesus to what you already have. And are comfortable with? Jesus should 
something needs to change if you're following Jesus. You never stay, your politics, your, your social agenda, your friendships, they all change in some way or you really haven't met with Jesus. And maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and I'm glad you're here, but do you think that Christianity is just another moral code? The gospel, the good news, tells us that God is not about keeping codes. He's about drawing you to a person. The Apostle Paul, to his second letter, his second letter to the church in Corinth, he said, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, meaning the way you used to think before you met Jesus. We, we regard no one according to the flesh. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is all from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That reconciliation. That is, that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we're Christ's ambassadors. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. So, you know, when we're praying for people because we love them and, and, and when we are trying to draw people into the community of Jesus and the message of Jesus, we need to remember as a church and we need to remember as individuals, if you're Christian, that we are not primarily drawing people into a, a cultural attitude. We're not primarily drawing people into a system, a code, a style of worship, uh, even a particular theology. Although these are all good things, we're primarily drawing people to a person. Right? Behind the door is a person. Not just, not just a bunch of rules. And that's how the world sees it. When are they going to not see that? It's when you start focusing on grace. Um, we draw people to a person. So, so the Spirit of God, he did this in the early church, and he's doing it now if we're listening. The Spirit of God gives us discernment to disciple in grace and not in the law. God saves and unites all peoples by his grace through faith, which is a gift, with no distinctions, as Peter said, no distinctions. If they believe in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there should be no distinctions. If you're bothered about somebody's attitude or, or, or tendencies, the Lord Jesus is going to deal with it over time. But we don't start with a code. We don't start with a rule. We start with grace. And then we build the foundation up from there. So may we live by grace and relate to one another by grace and relate to the world, the outside world, by grace. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Bible and for the Old Testament and for the New Testament. We thank you for the law, which taught us to love you above everything else and love you only and to love each other as we love ourselves. We know that these things are good, but Father, save us from our tendency to want to perform at these things and, and find our satisfaction in doing them well. 
we know that we could never do them perfectly. So forgive us for when we judge other people for not (laughs) doing them well at all. (laughs) Um, Father, have mercy on us sinners. And uh, thank you for the grace, the gift of your favor, undeserved but given freely through the death and resurrection of your son Jesus. Help us to live by grace and regard one another by grace. Amen.